Welcome back to another Yak Podcast. Uh, we're excited to continue our series on things of the earth this week. Uh, again, if I haven't mentioned it before, I think I have. Um, we're covering the book by Joe Rigney uh, called Things of the Earth. Uh, and if you want to pick up a copy, it kind of breaks down exactly where we're heading and what we've been doing. Um, this week, we're covering the topic of God as author. Hope you enjoy. In the beginning of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund Pensy, Pevensy? Where's your sister when I need her to correct me on the letters or Pevensy? Talks back to Susan. Edward talks back to Susan, defies Peter, makes fun of the kindly professor, teases Lucy about her claim that she has traveled to another world. He doesn't exactly come across as a likable character. Although the author makes it clear that Edmund's experience at school has turned him into a bully. You've always liked being beastly to anyone smaller than you, Peter says to Edmund. We've seen that at school before now. Some of Edmund's unpleasantness also comes from his clash with Peter. And Peter admits to Aslan that his treatment of Edmund might contribute to his brother's attitude. When Edmund finally does make it to Narnia, he is discovered by the White Witch, who manipulates the desires of Edmund and convinces him that she will make him a prince and give him power and authority. Foolishly, Edmund eats and drinks food that the witch gives him, including a large quantity of a candy he requests, which is? Turkish delight. Which she enchants so that he will continue craving it forever. Once Edmund is used for the purpose of getting what the queen wants, he becomes the unwitting prisoner of the queen, traveling with her through Narnia as she tries to figure out why her anti-Christmas curse is breaking. I want your response. You just heard Edmund's story. Whose fault is Edmund's betrayal? Whose fault is Edmund's betrayal? Can we have Edmunds? Anyone else contribute to it? Anybody else? Edmund. So Peter wasn't at fault at all for some of the ways he treated Edmund? He might have helped, played a role. But the ultimate fault falls on Edmund. Okay. Ultimate fault falls on Edmund. Does the witch play a role in manipulating Edmund's desires? She sure does. Okay. But we would agree that Edmund is the one who pulled the trigger. Correct, though. Okay. You have anything to add, William? No. Okay. One of the main reasons we covered the Trinity last week is to remind you that God was completely satisfied in Himself before He made us, and yet He freely and joyously created the world. Now we will discuss how this triune God is completely satisfied in Himself related to the world He created. Now two things need to be noted. God created everything from nothing. He spoke all matter, time, and space into existence. Not only did he do this, he currently sustains creation, Hebrews 1.13. It would be like the waiter speaking his meal into existence, carrying it the whole time it existed, and never putting it down to sustain itself. He's always there. I love how Jonathan Edwards puts it in his sermon, God is everywhere present. So when we look at the sun, moon, and stars above, or look upon the earth or things below, if we look so much as upon the stones or under them, we see infinite power now in exercise at that place. 
If we look upon ourselves and see our hands or food, these members have an existence now because God is there and by an act of infinite power upholds them. So God is not only everywhere, but he is everywhere working. So if God is everywhere present, we must then suddenly deal with the issue of human freedom and divine sovereignty. First, know that God knows and ordains everything that comes to pass. Okay? This is clear. He knows knows and ordains everything that comes to pass. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Job 42.2. No purpose of his can be thwarted. Isaiah 46.9 and 10. He is God and there is no other. He is God and there is none like him. His counsel will stand and he will accomplish all his purpose. Yet it just isn't the big picture events he's concerned with. Psalm 135.7. The weather. Romans 13.1, the establishments of governments. Proverbs 21.1, the decisions of rulers. Proverbs 19.21, the plans of human beings. Genesis 26, Acts 4.27-28, evil than the sinful decisions of rebels. He is concerned and involved in all those things. But here's the tension. The Bible assumes that our choices are real and meaningful. Joshua 24.15. The Bible teaches that God will judge us for our actions, 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Bible teaches that God will judge us for our words, Matthew 12.36. In the scripture, God issues commands, exhortations, warnings, and implies that we have some capacity to respond to them if we choose to do so, Exodus 23, Romans 8.13, Galatians 6.10. The Bible teaches that our actions are instrumental and necessary in the completion of God's purposes, Romans 10.14. Understand that the Bible, and this if you don't get anything else this evening, hear this. The Bible makes no attempt to reconcile the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. None. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it when he's asked about the issue. His response is, I never try to reconcile friends. We will wrestle with this issue because it's hard to grapple with. But at the end of the day, the Bible makes no attempt even though it's clearly laying out two tense issues. I think, though, that the Bible does point us in the right direction as we wrestle with this issue. God is the author, the world is his story, and we are his characters. God is the author, the world is his story, and we are his characters. Psalm 139.16, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Ken Myers continues the analogy of God, speaking, into, speaking things into existence, saying, Combining this passage with the earlier passages of God creating and sustaining the world through speech, perhaps we can say this. God writes the book of history and then reads it aloud into existence. He puts pen to paper and forms a plan for the ages and then performs the dramatic rendering of his epic poem that is so potent that his words actually take on flesh. Think back to the story at the beginning with Edward Pensieve. Pensieve. Well, that one too. Okay. Think, think back to the story of Edward. When I asked Edmund, Edmund, think back to, back to the story of Edmund. When I asked whose fault was it that he betrayed, 
Why did no one blame C.S. Lewis? Ooh, dang. Yeah, Now, the objection might arise that the Pevensies are mere fantasy in relation to their author. But who do you think is more closely related, the Pevensies and their author or our lives and ours? The fact is, the gap between us and an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-whatever God is much greater than C.S. to the White Witch. Joe Rigney says this, that, remember Joe Rigney is the author from the book that I'm taking this whole series. He says this, For therein lies the uniqueness and might of God's creative power. When he invents a world other than himself, he makes it real and actual. Our fictional creations are phantasms, existing only in the mind or on the pages of the movie screen. But God's creations have substance, really living and moving and having their being in him. So what does that mean for your daily life? God is in control of all all of it. He literally has a plan for your time here on earth and your time in heaven. Ever thought of that? The stories he puts you through here on earth will have a profound impact on the way you experience heaven. Not only that, when you sit at an intersection, count the number of cars that go by. He not only knows your story, but all of theirs. And he knows how they will literally, in this analogy, intersect. And it helps deal with evil. If God knows the end goal of the story, one that exists past your character's time on the planet, and intersecting with other stories, all culminating at the judgment seat of Christ and the great feast of the Lamb, we can trust that it will all work together for good for those who love him. Romans 8.28 even if it means it not turning out as well on this side of heaven. Let's take a story of a boy born to a teenage bride, married to a man that is not his father. Tough situation. Poor would be an understatement. They moved around between countries when he was a young child, mostly because his life was threatened by a powerful government official. His story seems to indicate that his stepdad died when he was a teenager, and he had to begin to support his mother and stepbrothers and sisters at a very young age by today's standards. Taking up the trade of his stepfather to do so, he would one day follow the path that he always wanted to at around the age of 30, only to be mocked, shunned, betrayed, and eventually murdered. Tough life. But if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know who who I'm talking about. Jesus. Our author entered his story. I'm sure that's one wish C.S. had. Wish I was in Narnia. Our author entered his story. It would be like C.S. Lewis literally becoming Aslan and walked a hard path so that he could bring us the most beautiful love story ever. The reminder that I got this, I have the say in this, I'll enter into the mess so that you can know the author, so you can know me, and therefore attain the joy that you seek and fill the void that longs for me. That's what he did. I'm going to talk about that more in transformation groups. Thanks for listening to another Yak podcast. If you want more information on Yak, you can visit us at cccfrisco.org. Hope you join us again next week. Thanks for listening.